with the KHSU Magazine. I am Brian Curtis, joined now by Julie Clark, BLM forest ranger at Headwaters Forest Reserve and author of the enticing new book, which I have been enticed by here in the studio, Falk, Company Lumbertown of the American West. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So this is a really handsome tome. And uh, for folks who are not looking at it, as I am, you might be able to form a pretty good mental picture because this book is published by Arcadia Publishing, who are kind of the, I want to say the benchmark, like the archetype when you think about local historical photographs and nonfiction writing about small towns in America, like this is it. This is the format. So congratulations. Thank you. First and foremost, this is a really cool book. Yeah, Um, it's published through uh, Images of America out of North Carolina. So all throughout the United States, you have these little publications of local history that folks are able to um, write about. I think it's a really cool organization. And most of the towns that I've lived in, this is what like kind of the definitive historical record of the town looks like is is usually published by this company. So I think that's really cool. Uh, Is it your first book? Yes, yes, it is. Uh Then double congratulations are in order. Um, Let's talk a little bit about how you came to write it. Uh, Give us some of your personal history and, and how you came to discover Falk and what sparked your interest. Well, interestingly enough, the Headwaters Forest was actually acquired 20 years ago, and we're going to approach our 20th anniversary, the BLM, uh, March 1st of 1999, after about two decades of activism and saving these old-growth redwood trees that are in the Headwaters Forest. So, Was it privately held land before you guys took it over, or was it a local or like county conservation effort? Yeah, it was um, privately owned by Pacific Lumber and Sierra Pacific and... Um, even some tracks by um, Simpson at the time. And so there was um, this grassroots effort. Actually, while I was going to Humboldt State in 1995 and 97, lots of activism to save this 7,000 acres of old growth forest. And now it's public land and we're approaching our 20th year. Were you involved in the activism side as well? No, actually, no, I, you know, I wasn't. But you had sort of a front row seat. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure in those days, like kind of seeing what the, the so-called forest wars up close was pretty enticing. Yeah, and the quad every day at lunch, you'd hear Save Headwaters Forest. and So, so like, I think that's interesting to me that you went into, um, you know, forestry and um, and forest preservation, but you were kind of adjacent to that, sort of moving past it at the time? Well, actually, I I was an art major and a history major, so I wasn't even a park ranger type um, major here at Humboldt State. So what brought you to that pursuit? Um, I had about 10 years seasonal experience working at various historical parks and as a park ranger and with this, the California Conservation Corps. So it was almost like a like a summer gig or something that kind of yeah. evolved? Mm-hmm. For 10 years, yeah. So I had the experience and then I also got my teaching credentials. So I was also a teacher that was able to bring those skills to the trail as, as a park ranger. So do environmental education and historical interpretation so it was it fit perfect. Perfect. And you mentioned the Headwaters Forest Preserve, um, which for folks who may not know, is gorgeous. As you were saying, it's a, what about a thousand acres of preserved 
old growth forest? So it's actually uh, 2,500 acres of preserved old growth forest, uh, one, one to 2,000 year old redwood trees. Um, and most of it's pristine. So we do have small areas where we can hike through it. So if you go to the Elk River Trail, you can hike five miles to a small grove. And then if you go to the south end during the summer, you can request a hike and hike through a small grove there as well. But we actually have 2,500 acres that is really solely for the purpose of the endangered species that live there. And just preserving it for preservation. Mm -hmm. But long before... It was the Headwaters Forest Reserve. It contained falk. Um, tell us a little bit about falk. So interestingly, um, the whole Elk River Valley, if you've never been there, it's just right outside of Eureka um, on the south end. That was one of the first areas to be logged in 1860. And then Noah Falk was approached um, by some... Uh, investors from San Francisco. Actually, he had three mills here in Arcata. He was very influential in Arcata and his mansion was where Wildberries is today. And so by the time he was approached by these investors, he had 30 years experience here in Arcata and partnered with Isaac Miner. So he actually has um, a lot of history steeped in Arcata. And then he was able to take advantage of what's called the Timber and Stone Act. So they were able to purchase um, old growth redwoods for $2.50 an acre. And because it was so isolated and so far out in the valley of Elk River Valley, I mean, by if they needed to get to the nearest store, it was Old Town Eureka and it would take half a day. So he virtually had to build a company town. Yes, a company town is, I guess, what Falk was. Could you tell us a little bit about sort of the, the archetype of a company town in that era and how they sprung up around resource extraction. And also tell us a little bit about what made Falk as a specific company town sort of atypical, if anything. Yeah, so during this um, brief period of history from the 1880s to 1930s when the automobile wasn't readily, readily available, you had all these... Um, resource extraction industries like mining and lumbering. Um, you Basically, if you wanted workers, you had to build them a town. You had to build them houses. You had to build them a school because they had kids um, that were going to be, you know, there was families there, a cookhouse. And so they were sustainable in the fact that they had a source of entertainment, usually a dance hall and um, a little market and, and cookhouse. And then, you know, all these houses that popped up, um, almost like, kind of almost like shacks in a way. And then um, they were virtually, you know, their safety net was each other and um, raising vegetable gardens and cows and um, they had chickens. And so it was like this small little enclave in the middle of nowhere where this industry was going on. Was it mostly sort of loggers and mill workers doing things for themselves as far as like the vegetable gardening and, and sort of the more upkeep and maintenance or did industries then spring up around and, and people would actually kind of migrate to the town like, I'm going to be the grocer, I'm going to be the gardener, I'm going to work in the kitchen. Um, yeah, so there was um, actually a women, women played a huge part in company towns, especially um, in the cookhouse. So you had uh, women cooks generally and you had them as waitresses and then as far as the vegetable gardens go, the permanent residents that stayed on throughout the year, like even through the winter when the mill closed, the women raised those 
vegetables. The, the men were off working in the woods or in the mill. Um, the women made sure they had, you know, milk from their cow every day and eggs from the chickens. And then the women really helped each other together. Part of the mythology sort of surrounding company towns um, that I've gleaned just from, you know, high school history class and, and casual reading, the, there's often the sort of association of it being almost like um, like a very like a mini authoritarian state where the company is the authority, the company makes the rules and enforces them. And to that extent, you know, kind of the, the feel of a town is determined by the wills and whims of the company in charge. And as company men go, I understand Noah Falk was actually fairly highly regarded as being someone who is conscientious and kind of caring about his employees. Yeah, Noah Falk was really um, known as being a fair employer, uh, giving his workers a fair wage. What would the typical wage in the logging industry in those days have looked like and what sort of set him apart and above? Um, so in 1920s, loggers um, and just generally on the pay scale made about 25 cents an hour, which doesn't sound like a lot of money at all. They worked 10-hour days, so it was $2.50 a day. But for room and board, so that included all your food for the entire month and your rent, it was $5 a month. And so that's two days of work. And if you compare it to today's standards... How, how much do we have to pay for our food and our rent? Oh, my gosh, yeah. It represents a huge chunk. So people actually had a fair amount of good take-home pay um, in as much as they were taking it home. A lot of the employees were actually immigrants. Were they sending money elsewhere, or were they basically kind of like, we're it, we're just trying to make our, our fortunes and save up enough to go buy a little plot of land somewhere? So there's a couple parts to this. So... The immigrants that came mostly were from Finland and Sweden, and it was a perfect breeding ground. If you didn't know a language in your country and you had family that was already in the town, and so basically, you know, your your workplace is right next to your house, and then you have family there. And so it's like this whole little microcosm of your own country in a way, in your own neighborhood. Um, there was one gentleman um, who was from Italy, and he put his money away in Italian banks. And when the mill closed in 1937, he was in his late 60s and he went to collect his money and um, from his, the Italian bank so he could retire. And he found out that the state had seized his money. And so actually he stayed on. He was one of the last Falk residents in 1961 when he left because his cabin burned. But... Um, yeah, his name was Sir Ignoli, and um, they called him Garibaldi because it meant general in Italian. You also uh, tell some stories that were related to you by of a Falk resident who you were able to interview, um, Paul Mazzucci, and he is the honoree of the dedication of your book. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about him and, and some of the, sh the stories that he related to you as a first-hand witness. So early on when I came in 1999, he, his house was, was about a quarter mile from our parking lot. And someone had told me that he actually worked out at Falk in the 20s. He was born in 1908. 
He was the child of Italian immigrants as well, Swiss Italian. And they had a dairy farm out there really close to the fall. So the book, Falk's Claim, written by John Gates, had all the kinds of stories that I could catapult on and ask Paul about. And Paul, you know, when I would talk to him, looking at his eyes and hearing his stories, I could see the history through his eyes and experience the people through his stories. And by the time I transcribed all of um, his interviews, which was about seven years worth, I had 130 pages. Oh, wow. So yeah. he, had, he had much to tell. Yeah. Was there one particular story of like his sort of day-to-day life and just something that he saw or took part in that really stood out for you? Uh, So one of the stories he used to talk about over and over was in the 1920s, the mill pond at Falk, um, there was a big flood and all the logs broke through the dam and actually came all the way down to his property, where his property, he was only like 15 at the time. And um, his house was flooded and um, his barn, because they lived right on Elk River. And his mother was a staunch Italian woman. And um, Noah Falk actually met with her and said, we want our logs back. And... Um, and she said, no, we're going to sell the logs and you're going to pay for the damages. And she put her foot down. And so the house actually where they live, he doesn't, you know, he passed away in 2006, but the house that where his whole family lived for all those years is still there. And that was paid for by the logs that came down. <laughs> Mrs. Mazucci, wheeling and dealing. Good on her. Um, so you mentioned that that farm building is still there, but as I understand, most of what constituted the town of Falk is no more. Now, was that sort of through natural decline or at a certain point was it just like, all right, we got to knock these old buildings down? So in 1937, the mill shut down and the basically all those buildings where people lived became a ghost town and it was like time stood still. A lot of them left items that were in the houses and there was books in the bookshelves, there were shoes in the market waiting to be repaired and tools in the mill. And I think there was a thought that someday they would all come back. And so it was like this eerie place to go exploring. Well, over time, we have so much rain as you can see today. Yeah. Um, and so, so much forest out there that it'll just take over those buildings and entropy happens. And those buildings become dangerous. And for 40 years, after 40 years of sitting there, uh, the lumber company... Sierra Pacific that owned it at the time um, was too much of a liability, so they had to burn and bulldoze. I see. So it was like attracting treasure hunters, and Mm -hmm. they were like, well, if someone falls in a hole, it's our problem. Yes, exactly, Uh, yeah. I see. It's strange to think that this was such a, a, a pillar, like a pivotal component. You know, for a while it seemed virtually essential, and in just a a few short years, it basically disappeared from the face of the earth. Um, I'm wondering what sort of sparked the decline of Falk. A lot of it had to do with, so interestingly, Noah Falk actually, when he came in 1884 and set up the town and the mill, he capitalized on the newest technology in logging. The Dolby or steam donkey was invented locally. Oh, cool. Um, Dolbeer was actually partners with 
William Carson. And um, so I invented this steam donkey that oxen, you didn't need oxen pulling these huge logs anymore. And then Noah Falk actually had the first bandsaw in the United States out at the Falk Mill. And so he was revolutionary out there in a, in a, in a sense. But by the time 1937, he died in 1928. By the time 1937 happened, you know, the mill was still running on steam. There was no electricity at the time. Um, they had their old steam donkeys. Everybody else was had these fancy tractors and cats pulling around the logs in the woods. And they just couldn't afford to really upkeep. And the depression really hit them hard. And they actually applied for a loan of a million dollars and got it. Um, in our days, it would have been $250 million today's dollars in Holy 1930. Holy Yeah. Um, but that that only lasted like a year, right? When they reopened, it was thirty six to thirty seven, yep. and then it was done deal all over yep. again. Oh, how quickly things change, um, and how quickly the time has gone. Julie Clark, I have already preempted our other segment so that we can keep talking, and I feel like we could stay at it for a while yet. But alas, Art Waves is on the horizon, and I want to let people know that you are actually giving a couple talks um, in and around the county about the book and about the history of Falk for folks who want to learn more. So tell us a bit about where we can catch you. Yeah, so come to the Fortuna Depot Museum uh, Thursday, December 20th at 6 p.m. and I'll do a presentation on a lot of the information I shared here and do a book signing. And then I'll be at the Book Lager um, December 21st at 5.30 in Eureka. And then very exciting, I found out today I'm going to be doing the annual luncheon um, for the Historical Society on February 17th, and John Gates is coming, who wrote Falk's Claim. So we are both um, speaking at that event, and that'll be at 1230. And look at the Humboldt County Historical website for details there. And then I'll actually be February 23rd at Barnes & Nobles in Reading at 1 o'clock. Hey, making the rounds. Well, congratulations on the, the book and, and the reception so far. And uh, if people are interested in learning more, go see Julie Clark speak, because I can tell you, it's really fun. <laughs> Julie, thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thank you.